As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I keep saying there's a man on Wall Street with a crystal ball, and the fortune talent joins us right now. Mike Wilson, the CIO and Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. I say this because you come out last week and talk about this short-term tactical call of a market that's going to mount up a little bit, maybe through 4K again on the S&P 500. And here we are, massive week of gains last week, first couple of days this week, pretty tidy as well. What is it about the short term, Mike? And we could talk about the longer term, but what is it about the short term between now and maybe the start of next year where you become a little bit more constructive? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough gig, right? Uh, making predictions is a tough job, especially about the future, but that's, what, that's the life we've chosen. And, um, and look, we have to try and make these tactical calls when we feel like they're actually tradable. And we do feel like we got to a point uh, a couple of weeks ago, mainly for technical reasons, but there are some fundamental things that are changing too. Now, this summer, we didn't actually try and pivot into that tactical move because we didn't have all the elements. Let's talk about them one at a time. The first one is, you know, sentiment positioning is extremely bearish, uh, probably as bearish as we saw back in June at the last time we had a, a tactical rally. Um, secondly, though, we got to the 200-week moving average. That's something that we did not achieve in June. And we, that's a very important technical level that a lot of people don't talk about. We look at it very closely. It is your long-term uh, support level. And, when you, and, you, and to break that level, you typically need a recession, okay? Now, the odds of recession are very high, as you were just speaking, but we, we haven't seen the whites of the eyes of that recession yet. And until you get that, you can usually hold that 200-week moving average. That was a big factor. And then probably the most other, other important factor is we think rates are topping. You know, rates, rates are, are, are looking very toppy. Our, our rate strategists have done a great job here. Uh, they've gotten more neutral. Uh, they're now calling for uh, no longer bare flatteners, but actually steepeners. And, and that's going to be mostly at the front end. But nonetheless, the back end's going to come down too as the market starts to think about the Fed pivoting. And then the last thing is the earnings story. As you guys know, I mean, that's where we've been focused. We're, we're probably more bearish than most on the outlook for next year. But, you know, we got earnings this, this quarter. And, and what we just don't think we're going to get, John, is we're not going to get the full capitulation from companies on 2023. We think it's just going to take longer. And we've written about that quite a bit. You know, you read our research. So you know how we're thinking. Uh, we're still bearish in the intermediate term. We don't think the bear market's over. Uh, but we do think this tactical rally is going to be big enough to try and, and pivot and trade it and trade it. You know, for those clients, you can do that. How far along, Mike, are we in this tactical rally? You know, all rallies and all you know downturns are about uh, time and price, Lisa, as you know. Um, I would say in terms of price, we, we've talked about 200-day moving average now is an achievable level. That's sort of 41.50, but it's coming down 
So depending on when you get there, that'll determine the level. Uh, I think in terms of time, it's probably into the holiday period, maybe Thanksgiving. You know, uh, then we'll get the sort of you know the Black Monday results. Uh, uh, you know, from you know from the holiday shopping season, and and we'll see if it is going to be a, a you know a Black Monday or a Red Monday. You know, do we get the sell through? We're we're pretty we're pretty uh, discouraged. You know, in terms of what we think we're going to get through on 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 holiday sell through. Uh, mainly because what you just mentioned, there's going to be a lot of discounting to move some of that extra inventory, something we've been highlighting for a while. And so that's when we'll get the next chance to perhaps see you know, the fundamentals overtake the technicals on the downside. And then we think ultimately the bear market will be over probably sometime in the first quarter. Now, all of this is you know, subject to revision, right? So I want to make it perfectly clear, if the market starts to trade off again and the S&P breaks down and blows through 36.50 on the downside, we'll be bearish again, okay? Um, but, you know, this is our job. We, uh, we think and we like the price action the last couple of weeks, notwithstanding, you know, some, some negative earnings reports uh, last night. Uh, we think maybe the market will hold up and that'll be another positive catalyst because if stocks don't go down on bad news and the market is going on bad news on fundamentals, then what do you have? And Mike, you talked about this difference between technical factors and fundamental factors. In the near term, what's the optimal way of paying that tactical rally in the equity market? How do you want to do that through the index of the S&P or somewhere beneath it somewhere else? Yeah, good question. I mean, first of all, you know, the call is really, you know, to help our clients who, you know, can short stocks, right? So the main call was just get out of the way. Uh, and, and because when you get these kinds of rallies, the shorts usually go up the most. And, and that's, what, that's what's happened so far. So it's, it's a low quality rally so far. Uh, you know, the shorts have rallied the most. So some of the expensive, uh, you know, kind of gross stocks, uh, some of the low quality cyclical stocks, the small caps have had a little run here. That will probably persist. Uh, and then I think ultimately it'll morph into probably NASDAQ leading because rates are going to come down, right? Part of our call is that rates have to come down. If rates don't come down, John, and we don't go below 4%, like in a meaningful way, the rally will peter out probably around these levels. But if that's if that happens, as we suspect, and rates do come in, then you'll see these growth stocks uh, have probably a pretty meaningful move, despite the fact that maybe we're getting some bad earnings reports. We're going to talk a little bit more about the fundamental stuff in just a moment, but just a little tease, Mike, if you can. 2023, early 23, it's earnings season for Q4 and maybe some guidance for the rest of the year. You said we haven't had it yet. We haven't had that overwhelming negative guide from corporate C-suite management, all the rest of it in America. Mike, how do you know what that looks like? What does that look like? What do you think that looks like? How will you know when you see it? Well, those are trade secrets. I, I can't share that. No, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I, you know, we'll know it when we see the forward estimates really come down. OK, uh, in other words, so far, uh, let's just talk about some numbers. It makes it easier for people to kind of follow what we're looking at, which is so we think we think markets trade on next 12 month EPS. OK, and in the S&P 500 case that got to 240. That was the peak in June. We're down to about 233, 234 which is only about two or 3% off the highs. You know, we think that ultimately is gonna to go to about 195. So when we see that forward estimate get down about 30, 40, 50% in its way to the ultimate destination, then we'll feel like, okay, it's there. We're not gonna wait for 195, by then the market would have definitely discounted it. But at 233, 234, that's not anywhere near where we need, we think we need to be to say, yeah. okay, the market gets a joke. And that's, that's something like 220, 225, John. That's kind of what we're looking for in NTM EPS for those people who follow it. You would just rank the best portfolio strategist in the latest institutional investor survey. Mike, I know you well. You'd share that price with the whole of your team. Mike, can we start there? Can you walk me through what has really given you and the team the edge this year as you've worked through a really fast-moving economy and a tremendously difficult market? 
You know, thanks, John. I appreciate that. And you're right. It's a team effort. I mean, uh, a lot of effort goes into this this ranking. A lot of it has to do with just client service, if anything else. Our calls have been right. But, you know, what clients pay us for and what clients really want from us is, is critical thinking and, you know, holding their feet to the fire on, you know, kind of what's happening. And I think what's allowed us to maybe uh, get ahead of the curve a little bit is I'll go back to three years ago. And you know our research well. We, we first started talking about the recession itself. It was going to be you know, really nasty, but then the V-shape recovering, we said the next cycle will be hotter, but shorter. And so having that framework, right, this, we, we, you know, we're psychoanalysts, a little different than psychoanalysts, but we're psychoanalysts and we look <laughs> at that- history. Yeah, well, it's similar. And, and it, but it helps us understand kind of, okay, well, what does this period look like? They're never the same exactly, but having that context, that historical context, we spend an enormous amount of time on that. Plus I'm a little bit older. So some of it I lived through, and, and we understand when we see something, okay, it's different this time. And that helps us sort of stay ahead of the pack. Not always, but I think in this year in particular, right, we saw early on that this is going to be a, a, a shorter cycle. The Fed was going to have to move faster than people expected. Uh, that was going to, you know, curtail uh, expectations on uh, profits. Ultimately, the fire and ice narrative has played out. And that, you know, so just being willing to kind of get in front of the pack, I think has, has really helped us, not just this year, uh, but in years past as well. And, of course, when you do that, you run the risk of being wrong. Okay. And we're wrong occasionally, you know, and it's not always right. Um, but you have to be willing to go there. You have to be willing to take a, a shot and get away from the consensus. Mike, given the historical uh, perspective that you do bring to this, where are we in terms of the ice and short and shallow and this question of, okay, if it is deeper, how long will it last and how long can inflation remain prolonged? When you take a look at when you start to find optimism in the equity markets, perhaps early next year, is that predicated on this idea that we are not going to be in some sort of high inflation environment for a very long time? Yeah, I mean, here's a great example where, you know, we're just, we have a view that is not consensus and we have more conviction in it. We've been actually thinking about this for four or five years. If you go back and look at our research, we didn't just pull it out of left field. We think we're entering, you know, the end of financial repression, the end of secular stagnation. And actually the pandemic is, was the catalyst to kind of break us out. Now, of course, we're experiencing this first wave of inflation, which was spectacular um, and, you know, more than people expected. But we think we're into what we think is a boom-bust environment. It's very similar to the post-World War II period of 40s and 50s, where we had more frequent recessions and inflation was volatile. Okay, So it wasn't higher and then stayed there. It was high, low, high, low. And, and the trend is up. Okay, So we have no uh, sort of you know naive belief that we're going back to the way the world was, lower for longer. And the Fed can continue to keep, you know, rates at zero or lower. That's not, we're never going back to that. It's going to be something different. But we also don't think it's the 70s where we're going to have this cost push inflation. We've always said that we think it's a demand pull inflation and that demand is waning now as supply picks up. And so that will create the ebbs and flows. Uh, and what we really think we're in is, to is, is a volatile economic outcome, which includes inflation and includes nominal GDP, includes all the factors. And it's just going to be a lot more volatile. And that's just a different environment. And if you understand that, it, you can, it can be quite profitable if you understand how to trade it on both sides. Mike, just a final question from me then. Does it tell you anything at this point? And how does it influence your thinking about future leadership in this market after a decade of growth dominance on the S&P? Yeah, we're not in the camp that it's just going to be one or the other. We think it's going to be a broader uh, kind of market where you get broader participation, kind of like 2020. And then, you know, 
it was it was broader. It was small caps led, right? We had uh, growth and value working together. I can tell you this: the days of you know ridiculously priced growth stocks, that's over. Okay, and that by the way, that was dumb to begin with. So that's good. You take that stuff out, and then, but that doesn't mean all growth stocks are doomed. It just means you can't overpay for it the way that you could when rates were negative. Okay, so we're no we're not going back to that environment, which means you have to focus on companies that can actually operate efficiently in this more uh, volatile economic environment, deliver the goods on earnings, and then pay a reasonable multiple. You know, it's kind of back to basics. You know, it's kind of the way it was when I first started in the business, you know, you know getting up, get the training wheels off the bike and, and learn how to ride again. Hey, Mike, just wonderful to catch up and send our best to the team, won't you? Congratulations. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley there. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Neil Dutter of Anaxos Macro joins us around a table. I was told by Joe Weissenthal to ask you about your sterling target out of the UK. And I said to Joe straight away when he messaged me about 30 minutes ago, Joe, what are you talking about? Does FX targets now? What's Joe talking about? I, I don't have a sterling target, but I can tell you that uh, my kids have convinced me to go as the prime minister of the UK for Halloween. You're going as Rishi Sunak. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely am. Is Rishi Sunak coming with good things? Uh, I mean, I, as I was j- joking with Joe, I mean, I, I told him very clearly that, um, you know, I have a habit of betting on Indian. And uh, I told him <laughs> as a result, um, it's time to go long sterling. He's got the credibility back in the market. Yeah, exactly. That's more than a joke for a lot of people. Let's talk about the credibility of this Fed chair as well, Neil. And it's wonderful to have you with us around the table. The politicians are pushing back, Neil. The usual suspects, Warren, Sanders, but also now the Senate Banking Committee chair as well in a letter according to Punchbowl yesterday. How did you and the team respond to that? Well, I think it's, uh, it's amusing. Um, you know, look, if the prediction markets are right, they better get in their um, jabs right now because the likelihood is is that the Republicans will sweep the uh, both the House and the Senate if the prediction markets are right. And I can tell you right now that if the Republicans are playing this right, uh, they will not have any political interest to tell the Fed to back off from hiking. So threats to the Fed's independence from higher interest rates, I think, will be dramatically coming down once the Republicans take over the Congress because... They want the Fed to keep hiking. 
to slow the economy down, to improve their own political fortunes going into the 2024 elections. This is actually really important because it also suggests an unwillingness on the fiscal side at a time when we're heading into a downturn. Does this mean that any fiscal impulse from Washington, D.C., based on the outcome that you said is most likely, is going to be that much more reduced and going to be that much less of a countercyclical balance to what's upcoming? Well, I think that's the case going forward. I mean, the next time we have an economic slump, given where interest rates are, uh, and given the recent experience with inflation, I think it's highly likely that we'll have less countercyclical policy, both uh, not only from the monetary side, because I don't think the Fed will be going as aggressively next time around, but also obviously from the fiscal side, because the fact that interest rates are higher means that the government's spending more on interest expense, which will limit their ability to uh, backstop uh, the economy. Growing issue coming out of the election, if the Republicans take control, is the uh, pre presumptive Speaker of the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, saying that they will hold the economy hostage to the debt ceiling, which would come up theoretically sometime in the first half of the year, and that they are basically willing to go up to the line and maybe fall over and see the U.S. downgraded or and or default. Uh, how much of a risk do you think that is? Uh, I think it's a risk. Um, I don't know that it's any more than previous years. I mean, remember, we've we've had this happen with, you know, Democratic president um, back in 2011. Republicans just got into power. Uh, we pushed up to the limit. Um, the debt did get downgraded. And what happened with interest rates, they actually declined at the time. So uh, maybe this time will be different. Um, but I have a feeling that they'll push up to the... Uh, last moment, and if it wasn't for the last minute, nothing would get done, sort of. I hope we're not doing that again anytime soon, Mike, but I, I share your fears that we might be <laughs> pretty soon as well. Neil, the pushback that we often get on this show when we have guests come on and talk about runaway inflation is just to open your eyes and look beyond the data. Look at freight rates, look what's happening with supply chains, look at what's house, happening with house price data, with rents in certain cities starting right. to roll over a little bit. When does that start to show up? I mean, is there a statute of data? limitations on those arguments? I mean, that's my issue. We've been talking about those... Um, issues for for the last six months. And that's not to say that those things aren't happening. But during that time, core inflation's actually accelerated and underlying inflation's actually accelerated. So I think there's a statute of limitations on those arguments. Um, I think ultimately what we're talking about there is just relative price shifting. If, you know, let's say people are getting paid and they have their jobs and their wages are growing at 5%. Okay. And now the rent burden is becoming too onerous. So everyone who decided to go out and live on their own decides to shack up with a roommate. What did you just do? You gave yourself a tax cut. If you don't lose your job, um, you're not paying as much on rent. That frees up dollars to go spend elsewhere, driving up the prices for those other goods and services upon which you are spending money. And so I don't know where the money's going to go, but I can tell you, absent a sort of spontaneous increase in the savings rate, it's highly unlikely um, that, you know, I mean, all they're talking about is really relative price shifting. Um, I don't necessarily think that's the way the Fed is thinking about inflation, rightly or wrongly, for whatever reason, okay? Uh, and my, not, my job is not to tell people whether I think it's right or wrong. It's, to, it's about trying to tell people what I think is going to happen. And uh, rightly or wrongly, the Fed views the labor markets as the conduit to achieve their inflation objectives. And that means you need to see higher unemployment. And if that's the goal, they are failing miserably, okay? I mean, we just learned that... Um, you know, despite all the sort of chatter about tech layoffs, I mean, Google's still hiring lots of people. Oh. I mean, all these large tech companies are hiring lots of people. Consumers still feel very confident about the jobs market. Claims are still very low. Even if you look at regional manufacturing indicators that have been slowing down, 
the employment components within them remain relatively strong. I wanted to ask you, though, about big tech. That's exactly where I wanted to go, because it's perhaps we haven't seen the job cuts yet. But perhaps they're coming based on the rhetoric from Google, based on the rhetoric that we've heard from Meta or Facebook, based on the rhetoric that we've heard pretty much across the board. Today, Seagate Technology Holdings uh, says that it's going to cut 3,000 jobs. I mean, we keep hearing anecdotally, yes, this is happening. So is it too soon to say that we're not going to see those broad-based tech cutbacks? I mean, I think you are seeing those cutbacks, but I think what also is happening is that there are lots of lots of job openings, and so those people are transitioning relatively quickly to new employment opportunities. And uh, one of the things we find is that you know the median spell for unemployment is like very low. I mean, I think I mean maybe less than ten weeks. So so I, I think a lot of those people may be getting layoffs. Not to say the news is fake. I mean, but they're just. Um, you know, the fact that continuing claims remain low tells you that those uh, newly laid off people are transitioning into new jobs pretty quickly. What do you make of this step down argument then? This story that came well, out I, of the Wall Street Journal, 75 to 50 to 25? I think that's implicit in the Fed's dots plot. Now, the issue is for the Fed is that if every time they hint at a mini pivot, the market the rips. Market <laughs> rips and break-even rates go up 10 basis points, that's a problem, and it makes the pivot less likely. So um, I do think, uh, you know, the risk is that they end up doing more than what they've already signaled in the dots plot. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see a Fed funds rate, you know, well north of 5%. I think we're actually on a glide path to that. And, and, and the fact that, you know, to me, the most notable thing that, that, that Chair Powell has said uh, was at the September meeting when he had that kind of moment where he said, I don't know what the path will be. I can just tell you it'll be enough. That, to me, tells you that relative to whatever they've they've put into their dots plot, it's likely to be higher than that. They want to put a lid on markets, Lisa, and on financial conditions. Yeah, that's a problem, right? And this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. But what Neil just said there, then they're on a glide path to well north of 5%, and they're going to have to get there because they can't signal anything close to a pivot unless things are so bad. Well, there's room that things so may even improve, uh, you know, in the equity markets between now and year end. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing is that, you know, from our, my climate, I don't follow Europe closely, but, you know, I was just in London not long ago. And I can tell you that people are feeling a little bit better about the European energy situation. The weather's we warm. Talked, we talked about the Rishi, uh, Rishi Sunak rally. Sure. Um, that's going to take pressure off the U.S. dollar exchange rate, which will breathe life into cyclical stocks like industrials, which, yeah. by the way, have been outperforming. So, you know, you can see a potential melt up uh, into, into the end of the year. I've got the final word here. If you're going to Rishi, you need one of these. I was about to say skinny yeah, got, tie. I've got to get All you about a slimmer the skinny tie. tie. I was thinking <laughs> the same I think thing. I have to buy yeah. the Prada shoes first. And, and the Prada <laughs> shoes. And I've got no skinny idea where that suits from either. But I'm sure I can't afford it. Neil Dutta, <laughs> Renaissance Macro. Neil, just absolutely awesome. Thank you, sir. Joining us now is Asa Linios, the Global Head of FX Strategy at RBC. Asa, I'd love your reaction to what we're hearing from the British government and ultimately what it means for pound sterling with cable seeing a higher session of 116.20 this morning. Sure. So I think, as you said, a lot of this is dollar weakness rather than sterling strength. But on the UK side, some interesting developments, because I think um, Sunak and Hunt probably right to actually delay that statement, certainly from October 31st. I mean, the tabloid writers would have had a field day um, with the Halloween headlines. And yes, it makes the Bank of England's decision a lot harder on November 3rd. But I think what Sunak and Hunt are hoping is that if the current momentum continues, you know, you can see global bond yields actually coming down everywhere, that the hole they have to fill on November 17th will actually be smaller rather than larger. I have no idea, Lisa, why it was ever October 31st. As soon as I saw the headline, it's exactly what I said. Why are they doing this on Halloween? <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
I almost feel like it, I kind of wanted to be October 31st so that we can see those tabloid headlines. I mean, is that really a reason to delay it? A lot of people <laughs> talked about the incompetence of the former leader. I always had a problem with that October 31 <laughs> I think it's great. timing. I thought Made it was ridiculous. Uh, so we do have a meeting of the MPC or the Bank of England. A decision will come on November 3rd. Does this complicate things for them? And to what degree? I mean, I think for this meeting, um, probably 75 and then a wait and see. Further out the curve, there's quite a lot in the price. And actually, we're looking for, say, you know, June 23, Sonia's um, to rally a little bit. But they don't need to make those decisions right now. And they certainly don't need to give any forward guidance. You know, they'll be very much guided by what comes out on November 17th and the state of the market as they make each and every decision. So, yes, they're not in an easy position, but I think their position is a lot easier now than it was a few weeks ago. Also, as you said, this is also very much a dollar weakness story. How sustainable is that dollar weakness? And that's a critical question, Lisa. I mean, we had on Friday that apparent shift in rhetoric from the Fed right before the blackout. Then over the weekend, developments in China made markets a little bit risk averse on Monday. Now it appears to be turning again. You know, we've seen euro dollar break some pretty big levels, not just parity, but the downtrend that really started in, in January. Um, and so if we see a combination of lower yields, slightly higher equities, I think the dollar will be in a little bit of trouble for the next month ahead. Longer term, structurally, like you said, it doesn't change anything fundamentally. Um, but for now, I do think there's a little bit of profit taking and a relief rally for other currencies. John, Elsa was just saying on Friday, we got hints of something different from the Federal Reserve. Is she talking about a particular article in the Wall Street Journal? Is that really what people are hinging this all on? I don't think you need to read the article in the Wall Street Journal. I think Mary Daly said it for herself over the San Francisco Fed. I think other Fed presidents have said the same thing. This whole idea about a step down, though, can you have a step down without the CPI confirming a deceleration in inflation in a much bigger way? Now, we can all identify falling prices, and I've heard the pushback, and I'm sure I'm going to get it any minute now on my Bloomberg <laughs> Three, terminal. Those two, messages one. will light up. I get all of that. It's not about what I think the Fed should do. It's what they're going to tell us they will do. And what they're telling us they will do is that they need a convincing, convincing, several months maybe worth of core data that tells them that they're on a trajectory back towards a 2% inflation target. Well, and there's this other question of, let's say the Fed does have a step down, right? And then they keep rates at 4.5% for a prolonged period of time. Sure. Elsa, is that going to mean that the dollar is going to be weaker or does that mean that it will be stronger because it will be a more persistent, higher yield? And it means that the rest of the world isn't catching up necessarily at the same pace. Right. And that's what I wanted to come on to with, you know, the structural comment, because to your point, Lisa, if they are going to keep rates at four and a half percent, and yes, other central banks are hiking, but they're also beginning to slow down. The dollar is going to maintain that yield advantage and it's going to maintain effectively the status of the highest carrier, one of the highest carry currencies within G10 and even relative to several emerging markets. So, you know, I think you've got to distinguish the kind of short-term tactical repositioning from the longer-term structural moves. And at the moment, we've not yet seen that turnaround in U.S. inflation that will really get the Fed to actually cut rates rather than just pause the hikes. So bear with me. This isn't exactly a butterfly theory, but how much is the U.K. getting a reprieve from what Japan and China are doing to try to support their currencies? I mean, it's often been said that politics is all about timing. And you can't exactly feel sorry for Liz Truss, but you can look at kind of global developments and feel like had she not had such terrible timing, she perhaps might have lasted longer than that letters. I mean, all I'll say is that, yes, there is a bit of a reprieve here for the UK, um, but certainly they have their work cut out as well. It's not going to be straightforward sailing, um, especially with the current account as it is at the moment. Do you remember when everyone got really excited about a step down in rate hikes early this month and it was because the RBA over in Australia didn't go 50, they went 25? Well, we had CPI data 
out of Australia overnight for the third quarter. And it surprised big time to the upside. Alistair, I know this is a lagging indicator of things, and I'm sure the RBA has got a lot of tightening in the pipeline, but is that a warning shot to this Federal Reserve? In part, but I think also what will be interesting is to see how the Bank of Canada reacts today. If you recall, the Bank of Canada hiked in March just a couple of weeks ahead of the Fed. And at the time, they were very much seen as, you know, leading things. The RBA was still very much stuck in its forward guidance. Um, so let's see what the, the Bank of Canada do today. A very finely balanced decision between 75 and 50. I think a lot of people will be looking at that as a, a sign, perhaps, of things to come. Alistair, wonderful to hear from you, as always. Alistair there of RBC. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.